Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. So this week, we have a double portion. Double portion is Matot and Masse. Matot being the tribes and Masse being the journeys. Okay. Now, we're concluding the book of Numbers. And in a way, we're, we're concluding the Torah. I know that sounds kind of funny because we know there's five books in the Torah, but there's, there's the first four, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then we have Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is considered a, a second telling of the Torah. Moses is essentially speaking to the children of Israel um, over a number of weeks, recounting to them their journeys and really giving them back the whole story and the heart of the covenant. And, and so... Um, so yeah, so the end of Numbers is viewed in some ways as the end of the Torah. Um, now, in, interestingly enough, as the Numbers ends, the children of Israel are camped on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are preparing to cross the Jordan and go in and begin the conquest of the land. So they're camped there on the, on the plains of, of Moab, and then their next step will be there under the leadership of Joshua going in to take the land. And, you know, even if Numbers wasn't viewed in, in some ways as the end of the Torah, well, Deuteronomy ends the same way, with the children of Israel right there, encamped and ready to go. Um, and, you know, some questions might enter into our minds about, well, why does, uh, why, does, why does it end here? You know, God's promise to Abraham was that his offspring would inherit the land. Right? It seems to me if I were writing a book, I would say, okay, well, let's go ahead, let's go in, let's conquer the land and say they lived happily ever after and we're done, right? But instead we end right on the precipice where the children of Israel are about to go in. So, you know, what's, what's the message, you know, that, that the Lord is trying to say to us? And I don't know what all the messages are, of course, but one is that what God is doing is he is bringing them to the point of being prepared for a new beginning. They're about to cross over from one life into a new life. They're going from the journey along the way into the promise, right? And so in some ways we can see this as a picture of going from this world into the world to come, right? Or perhaps from this world into the Messianic era. Either way, right? Because the children of Israel are getting ready to be led by Joshua, which is Yoshua, into the promises, right? And then you have us being led by Yoshua, Yeshua, right? Being led into the messianic era, into the promises, which will be completed and fulfilled and lead us into the world to come. So one of the things that's happening in this week's double portion is a putting behind of the past and preparing for that new beginning, okay? Um, now, in putting the past behind, it's not, a, it's not a forgetting of the past, right? If it were a forgetting of the past, then we wouldn't have the, the portion called Masse, which is the journeys that talks about the 42 journeys, you know, from Egypt to this place of getting ready to go. 
but it's actually speaking about really a completion of a reconciliation, reaffirming a reconciliation. And within that, what I'm speaking of is specifically, it's an end of the exile. Okay, the exile began in some ways with the sale of Joseph. And now, here at the end of Numbers, we're seeing the end of that exile. And we're going to go into how those two stories connect with one another as we, as we go through the message today. Another thing about the past not being forgotten, if we do forget the past, then we're doomed to repeat it, right? So we do need remembrances of where we've been. And if we don't know where we came from, I don't know if we can really know who we are, right? So it's important to remember where we came from and what our past is so that we can learn from it, we can grow from it, and we can see the reconciliations and the healings even that are taking place in it. Now, let's see. So the last chapter in the book of Numbers, if it's the end of the Torah, you would think it's coming to a pretty big climax, you know, some big main event, uh, maybe like they win some great battle, and then now they're ready to go and cross, and the fear has fallen over all the people of the land, right? Something like that. But instead, Numbers 36 talks about the daughters of Zelophehad. Remember, these are the daughters who came to Moses and said, our father has passed away and he has no sons and he has no brothers. So what's to happen of our inheritance? What's to happen of his legacy? Moses asked the Lord and the Lord says, okay, well, the, his daughters will inherit. Right? His daughters will inherit the land and, and the, the land will pass down through them. Now, within chapter 36, we find that the requirement is for them to marry someone of the tribe of Manasseh such that in the year of Jubilee, their land will not pass on to a different tribe, but will remain within the tribe of Manasseh. Okay. And so the funny thing is that, you know, okay, so I, I guess I'm, I'm saying it kind of ends on what would seem like a little bit of a dull note. Like, okay, that's just another one of the little stories that could have happened earlier. You know, this, this retelling. But there's a purpose behind why it's there. There's a purpose behind why everything that's written in the Torah is written. Even the specific words that are used, that are used the times when they're repeated multiple times. Um, and there's examples of that. Uh, that the sages at times derive uh, meaning from. Particularly, there's another time when uh, the scripture talks about the tabernacle. And it says the tabernacle twice in a row. And they say, well, that's because there will be the first tabernacle and the second tabernacle that would come, right? So there's meaning that's derived from these. But of course, that's, that's, uh, that's not a plain and simple meaning of the text. That's one that's going in a little bit deeper, you know, when we're, when we're trying to draw information from specific words that are used. And within exegesis, you know, interpretation of the scriptures that was used by the rabbis and sages, there's a method called pardes, okay? And it's an approach that has four different levels of understanding of the scriptures. The first one is the peshat, which is the plain and simple meaning of the text. It's like you read it, here's what it says at face value. That's your plain and simple meaning. It's very direct. And then there's the remez, which is 
a hint that's placed in the text. It's kind of like um, an allegory or something makes you say, wait, I think there's something more here. I think this may connect somewhere else. So you have hinting of, of a deeper meaning. And then you have something called darash. And darash comes from the word, uh, that, well, it comes from a word that means seeking or inquiring. And often it's more like metaphorical. So you're, you're giving, uh, digging deeper and making, comparing and contrasting aspects. And then there's sowed, which is the secret or the deep and hidden meaning of the scripture. So there's multiple levels of understanding within the scriptures. And God wrote, the, had the scriptures written in such a way that he would, you know, hide mysteries that would later be understood, later be revealed. He would place things in there for us to see and say, wait a second, why did you do that? Why did you say that here? Why did you use that word? And how does that connect to other stories in the scripture? And what then do I gain from understanding these connections? And so today we're going to be digging into a little bit of these connections that are, that are taking place uh, in telling the story of this end of the exile, this completion of a reconciliation, and this remembrance of where the children of Israel have been. A remembrance so that they can be strong as they go forward and not fall into the same problems that they walked in in the past. Okay, so let's go to Numbers 36, starting in verse 1. Because this, this is the last chapter of Numbers. The heads of the fathers' houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the head of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. Okay. So I started here um, simply because, okay, so the daughters of Zelophehad are in this line, and then it's about to go in and, and discuss them. But I, I stopped here because it's talking about the son of, of Machir, the son of Manasseh, right? And, you know, I, I don't really recall seeing the name Machir earlier. I know, I know it was mentioned earlier in the scriptures, but it's not a name that really stands out. It's not one that we tell a lot of stories about. And, but this isn't the only place in our double portion that Machir is, is mentioned today. Okay. Um, if we go back and look at Numbers 32, verses 39 to 41, the scripture says, And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it, and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Haboth Jair. Okay. All right, so there's this connection between Machir and Gilead. Right? And, and that's the land that they are taking possession of. But then the scripture says that Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured the villages of Gilead. Okay, it turns out that he had 23 of the villages in Gilead. But the problem is, Jair isn't of the tribe of Manasseh, Jair is of the tribe of Judah. And so. We kind of have to ask, well, what's going on here? What's, what's the story? And I'll, I'll show you in 1 Chronicles 2, verses 21 through 22. The scripture, this, this is going through and giving the line of Judah. Uh, this is in the genealogy of Judah. 
leading up to giving the genealogy of David. But afterward, Hezron went into the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, whom he married when he was 60 years old, and she bore him Segub. And Segub fathered Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. So Hezron was of the tribe of Judah. And you inherit your tribe from the father. It's a patriarchal line. Okay, So Jair is of the tribe of Judah, and it was his grandmother who was related to Mahir. Okay, so there's a distant connection to the tribe of Manasseh. But so the tribe of Manasseh essentially was saying, well, we've adopted you as our own through this familial connection. And he was given these villages in this inheritance. Interesting, right? But in, in, in the book of Numbers, the, the stress was that he's of the tribe, or he is a son of Mahir. Interesting. So we've got this connection here between the tribe of Joseph and the tribe of Judah that's being brought into focus here at the end of Numbers. So the sons of Manasseh capture Gilead by the hand of Yair, and he's given, Jair, sorry, it's Yair in Hebrew, it's Jair in the uh, Greek transliteration, kind of like Jairus, when we read about Jairus in the New Testament, you know, same guy, it's just that it's got the Greek ending of us to say that he's a male, okay, and uh, <clears throat> so anyway, so we've got Jair, and he is capturing Gilead. Now, what then our next question is, what's significant about Gilead? Okay. Well, Gilead is the place at which Joseph and Laban cut a covenant. I mean, not Joseph. Jacob and Laban cut a covenant when Jacob was fleeing Laban and coming back to the land with his 12, or, yeah, 11 sons at that point in time, because Benjamin was born after that. But, Okay, now, Gilead. Let's go and let's look in Genesis 31 at this story. Um, there's a lot of verses on the screen that I'm not going to read, most likely, because we're going to uh, you know, pull different verses throughout. Okay. I'm going to read a few of these. I'm going to kind of jump around, but let's start in verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent on the mountain. While Laban had, uh, had stationed his kinsmen on Mount Gilead, Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have deceived me and led my daughters away like captives of the sword? Why have you fled so stealthily and cheated me? Nor did you tell me, for I would have sent you off with gladness, songs, timbrel, and lyre. And then jumping forward, he goes on to say in verse 30, Now you have left because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Why did you st steal my teraphim? Okay, or actually Elohim here, but I think that's what it was. Um, yeah, his, his, his gods. Okay, so 
Jacob answers and says to Laban, I was afraid, for I thought perhaps you might steal your daughters from me. With whomever you find your gods, he shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, ascertain for yourself what is with me and take it back. Now, Nate, Jacob did not know Rachel had stolen them. Okay, so then we know that Laban goes and he looks through all of Jacob's tents and all of his goods and he can't find them. He comes to his daughter. Okay. Um, okay, so we'll keep reading. Laban came into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. When he had left Leah's tent, he came into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the teraphim, put them in the camel's pack saddle and sat on them. Laban rummaged through the whole tent and found nothing. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise up before you, for the way of women is upon me. Thus he searched, but he could not find the teraphim. Okay. So then Jacob became angry. right? And he took up a grievance with Laban. And Jacob spoke up and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? When you rummaged through all my things, what did you find of your household? Um, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen and let them decide between the two of us. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and she-goats never miscarried, nor did I eat rams of your flock. That which was mangled I never brought you. I myself would bear the loss. From me you would exact it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. This is how I was. By, by day scorching heat consumed me and frost by night. My sleep drifted from my eyes. This is my 20 years in your household. I served you 14 years of your two, for your two daughters and six years for your flocks. And you changed my wage a hundred times. Okay. And then um, I'm going to jump forward. And then Laban says, says to him in verse 44, So now come, let us make a covenant, I and you, and God shall be a witness between me and you. Okay, so, they, so they've... They're agreeing not to come and fight against one another across this boundary, okay? But they're going to enter into covenant. They take a stone and raised it up as a monument. Jacob said, um, they took stones, made a mound, and they ate there at the mound. So Jacob and Laban there ate with the mound, ate by the mound. And Laban called it, man, I don't know what this word is, Jagar Sahadutha. About that, and and but Jacob call it Galid. Okay, <coughs> Laban declared, "The mound is a witness between me and you today." Okay, and then let's see. Hang on one second. Okay, verse fifty-one. Laban said to Jacob, "Here is this mound, and here is the monument which I have cast between me and you. This mound shall be a witness, and the monument shall be witness." that I may not cross over to you past this mound. And it was because of that, this pile of stones, and it standing as a witness, that the place was called, literally, Galid, or uh, Gilad. Gilad is what it's called. Okay? And the pile of stones is a gal, and the aid is a witness. So Gilad is the pile of stones that is a witness. Okay, so here is the land where Jair is going to conquer, okay, and where the book of Numbers is winding up with. So it's going all the way back to this time when Jacob was being pursued, and when Jacob then actually spoke to Laban saying, whoever has taken your teraphim will surely die, 
Okay. And it was in this place that Jacob's very words created problems. Right? He spoke into existence unwittingly trials that would then come and affect him on the way. The sages understand that, um, that the death of Rachel when she was giving birth to Benjamin was fulfillment of Jacob's words because she had taken the teraphim. He didn't know it, but he said that that person will die. And then she died in giving birth to his offspring. And then we go forward into the life. What about, what about Joseph and Benjamin? Well, Joseph was as dead, right? Sold by his brothers. And then Benjamin was on the brink of being as dead when he was framed with the silver goblet as he was trying to leave. He was, once again, he was in the hands of Pharaoh with essentially what, was, what would be a death sentence. So both of his sons put into a real jeopardy here. And within this story, one of the things that we, we have to grasp is that there's power in our words. Our words have creative effect in this world. The whole world was created through the words spoken by God. Right? And now Jacob, through his words, was actually bringing about difficulties, um, which, funny enough, takes us to one other place that we won't go and look at, but our whole, por- our whole double portion opens up with vows and oaths that are uttered by the lips and how God requires people to fulfill their vows and oaths. Even within what a vow is, it's a, it's a nadir, okay? It's a nadir specifically, uh, there's two types, right? There was vows and there were oaths. Well, nadir is, a, is the specific one that is a vow. And it's one that's understood to actually have the power to change the legal status of something. So let's say that uh, you know, God says you, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. Well, he's made a legal ruling. You know, he's given a commandment that we cannot work on the Sabbath, we cannot do malacha on the Sabbath. Now, if you were to say, well, I vow not to do any malacha on the next two Mondays, Okay then in making that vow, you have changed the legal status for yourself of those two Mondays to where you it would be a sin for you to work on those days. Whereas if it's a normal day, it's totally permitted to do malacha on Monday, but now by your word, you have changed the status of those days. So there's power within that to even kind of, it's kind of creating a commandment, but not like unto God's commandments. But it is, But it's one that you have to adhere to because the commandment of God says you will keep your vows, right? So there's power in our words. And uh, Proverbs 18 has a good verse on this. Proverbs 18, verse 20 to 21 says, With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So we have to be careful and wise with the words that come forth from our mouth and not making uh, careless, uh, well, you know, not letting careless words go forth from our mouth. Okay, so, so we're talking about Jacob and his words that then brought forth difficulty for the family. 
and ultimately led to the sale of Joseph, which was the beginning of the exile in Egypt. Right? Because up to that point, after Jacob's return, he and his children were living there in the land. Now, a few things that are interesting in this, you know, we're tying this, um, we're tying this story. We have the, uh, the teraphim. Hang on, there's there's something that I've got to grab here. Uh, I think it's going to come. Oh, okay, yes, here's what it is. Sorry, my notes are incomplete today. So when, when Laban comes and says, why have you taken my idols? He says, why have you taken my teraphim? Right? And, and Rachel had taken his teraphim. Now, the word teraphim... It's not really known what it means, okay? But it's assumed to be idols because then he says, you've taken my gods, okay? So it's not a common word. He says, but, um, so she's got the teraphim. She's sitting on her, uh, whatever it was, horse, mule, whatever, donkey. And she says, the way of women is upon me so I can't get up, right? And so within this, she's implying that the, like the blanket or whatever it is that she's sitting on might have blood on it. Okay? And she says, and she's hiding the teraphim. So after the time that Joseph is sold and his brothers say, what are we going to do? And which is, let's go to uh, Genesis 44, 18. His brothers say, what are we going to do now that he's gone? Dude, um, actually, I'm sorry, I went to the wrong spot. We're going somewhere else. We're going to. Uh, <laughs> oh goodness, we're going to find. Okay, let's just let's just not even go there. Let's say that they've sold Joseph because there was a caravan coming. Okay, of Ishmaelites, they were coming. They took him, and now he's gone. They say, well, "What is going to happen to us?" Actually, it was Reuben. I think said this. They, What's going to happen? And they said, "Well, okay, let's let's." Take his garment and let's dip it in blood and let's take it to father and let's tell him that that he's been torn by a wild beast. Okay? And so they do this. They come to they come to Jacob and they say, Hey, here, look at this. Check and see. Do you recognize this? And and Jacob's response. Which I do need to find this. I, I don't know why I don't have the verses. Um they're somewhere in there. But Jacob takes it. And I'm actually going to go there because it's in Genesis 37. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Okay, they took the woolen tunic, Genesis 37, verse 32, uh, and they brought it up to their father and said, We found this. Identify if you please. Is it your son's tunic or not? He recognized it and said, My son's tunic, a savage beast, devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to bits. Okay? Now, specifically, what's happening is here, now you've got this, gar- this, you've got this garment that is covered in blood. And, and what he says is, Taroth Toroth. Okay? What does that mean? Well, Taroth the plural is, is the singular version of a word that in plural is teraphim. Tarof, tarof, 
And so he says, Taruf Toraf. You take the two tarufs and you put them together. Now you have plural. The way you make a word plural, a masculine word in Hebrew plural is to add in to the end of it. So you have taraf, terafim. So he says, terafim. Joseph is terafim. Isn't that interesting? So you've got the garment with blood and the connection to terafim tied right back over here to the terafim that Rachel was hidden supposedly while sitting on a garment stained with blood. <coughs> kind of fascinating, right? Now there's many, this is one connection that I'm bringing up, but there's many connections that were happening here in these stories that link them together to where you say, no, really, this, this is calling us back to the story of, you know, of, well, Joseph's sail being tied back to the words that were spoken there with Laban and the incident that happened with Laban. And this is at a place called Gilead, right? That the, the aspect with Laban took place. So Gilead is really where it can be seen as a place where the exile began. And so now here at the end of Numbers, when you have Jair coming and, and taking land in Gilead, he is coming and he is essentially destroying the beginning of the exile. He's putting an end to what to where the, to where it all began. And now, so you think about at the beginning, the beginning of the exile began with Joseph. He was sold into Egypt. And Judah had the idea of selling him, right? But then it was Judah who went and fought for Benjamin. Okay, so Joseph and Judah tied very, very much into the beginning of the exile and even the beginning of the redemption. And now here at the end, wrapping things up, you again, you have, you have Judah and Joseph coming back into this scene. Fascinating, right? Um, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave that one there. <laughs> okay, so, so we have that. We have Judah going in before Joseph and, and making a case for Benjamin, not being willing to let the second one of Rachel's sons to be lost. So and that's in Genesis forty-four eighteen, Because at this point, Joseph has said, all you brothers go, I'm keeping Benjamin. Okay? But then Judah approached him. And if you recall, this is the beginning of a portion back in Genesis called Vayigash, okay? And that's what Vayigash is, and he approached. And Judah approached him and said, O oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. Okay? So Judah approached him. He drew near and began to give his plea of why Joseph should take Judah in the place of Benjamin. And in that... In his heartfelt, totally abandoned to his father's will, desire to bring, well, really, life to Benjamin, it turned the heart of Joseph, and Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. Right? And there was a, that, through that intercession, there was a reconciliation, and there was a restoration. And now, 
you know, of course, when we look at this story, the whole life of Joseph gives us a picture of Yeshua, who was the Messiah, son of Joseph, the, the suffering Messiah, who came just as Joseph suffered and was raised up, right, and brought uh, really salvation to his brothers. Same thing of Yeshua through his intercession. He reversed, he, he has brought a reversal of the curse, and then he is, will one day bring a complete redemption and the end of the exile for Judah and Israel, right? Manasseh being one of the tribes of Israel, of the, of the ten. And he'll re- reveal himself to his brothers. So that's one connection that we have here. But there's, there's another one, and I, this, we're going to see how this goes, because uh, this already may be too complicated. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts in these links, um, but it's really, I think the, the key thing to grasp from, from this is God is trying to communicate to us the story of exile and redemption. The story of exile and redemption is repeated over and over throughout the history of Israel. And it's the ultimate promise that the exile will come to an end, that the redemption will come, right? And so we we get to see the story over and over again, and this redemption is complete as as we wrap up the book of Numbers. But there's one other thing that's happening in this area of of Gilead. And it comes to the story of the tribes of Reuben and Gad asking to have their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Okay, in Numbers 32, I won't read all this, we'll see what we're going to read. Starting in verse 1, Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, all these cities, uh, let's go to verse 4, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? And now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel, so they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for they did not follow me fully. Okay, so then he goes on to continue explaining how the Lord's anger burned. And then verse 14 says, Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Then they came near him and said, We will build here sheepfolds for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place, while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. 
We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. For we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. And then Moses' response is, okay, this sounds good, right? Now, the plain and simple meaning of this passage is there's, there's an appearance that they're afraid of crossing the, the Jordan to go and take the land, just as the ten spies had feared crossing to take the land. And so Moses sees this and he says, wait a second, this is history repeating itself. You're not about to discourage everybody because if you do, they won't be able to go. They won't be able to receive their inheritance. God will be angry with them and they're going to be, they're going to perish in the wilderness just as their fathers did. And, uh, and so then they say, no, we, we're not saying we're not going to fight. We're going to go fight. We're going to, we're going to do our part, but we just want this land as an inheritance. And he says, okay, this is good. Okay, so that's good and clean. It's simple to take this and look back and say, yeah, it's the time of the spies. He doesn't want it repeated. That's good. And, and that is accurate. But there's more to it. And again, it's going to tie us back to the story with Joseph. Okay? Now, in verse 14 of this passage, he says, Now, you, behold, you have risen up in your father's place, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord, okay, against Israel. Now, when he says to add, he's, he's saying Asaph, which is Yosef. He uses, it's the same root word of Joseph's name. You're adding to the burning anger of the Lord. Well, at this point, was there burning anger of the Lord against them? I mean, they'd been forgiven of their sin that they had done in the land of Moab there, and they were getting ready to go across. But he specifically uses this, this word that would point back to Joseph. And, and the interesting thing is that then the response of Gad and Reuben is that it's Vaigashu, uh, and they drew near. They approached him and said, no, we're not going to abandon our brothers. We're, our brothers will be protected by our swords. We're going to go in front of them, and we're going to get them their inheritance. And we're not going to stop until they've received their inheritance. So what you have here is he's saying, you're abandoning your brothers just like Joseph was abandoned that led to the exile. And they, in the place of, as like unto Judah, drew near to the one who has the authority and said... <coughs> No, we will not. We will, we will fight to the end for our brothers. We're going to go before them and ensure that they're safe and taken care of, which is what Judah did. He said, no, I'm not letting Benjamin go. I'm going to put my life on the forefront, and he's going to remain with my father. So it's interesting, right, that there's these hints here in the Bible pointing back, tying this back to the abandonment of brothers, the vision that can occur, and then saying, are you going to do that? Are you still going to walk in the ways of your fathers that brought division, that sold brothers out, that turned them over? Or are you going to be one who's going to stand for them? And they said, we will stand. We're not of our past actions. These, those actions have been reconciled. They've been renewed, and we're going to stand, and then we're going to walk forward in the inheritance that we've been given. So that's pretty neat, right? To think, to think about 
how how this connection and redeem all this all these aspects going back to the redemption of the beginning of the exile and saying we're reversing what caused the exile, bringing unity to the brothers. Now, Moses says, this is great. Gad, Reuben, if you do what you said you're going to do, you're going to have your inheritance on the east side of the Jordan, and so is half of the tribe of Manasseh. It's like, what? Why did you, why'd you throw half of Manasseh into this? Why shouldn't they be inheriting on the west side of the Jordan with the rest of their tribe? But Moses says, no. Manasseh is going to have land on both sides. They're going to be the only tribe that is on the east and the west side. So why is this, right? Well, if you recall, Manasseh is Joseph's first son that was born to him in Egypt. And in Genesis 41, verse 50 to 52, we, we have the story of Joseph's sons being born. It says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the first one, Manasseh, right? It comes from, well, uh, Nashah, which is to forget, right? And so he was saying, yeah, I've forgotten, just as Scripture says here. He's made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. He was essentially saying, I've forgotten the hardship, and essentially, I'm forgotten by my brothers. Right? Lost, essentially, to them. And so then, what Moses does, is he said, right here, we're seeing a, a wiping out of the division of the brothers. We're seeing an end to the exile. And now Manasseh, in this place, stands as a reminder that Reuben and Gad are not standing in division, but are walking with their brothers, even though they're going to be on the other side of the river. As the children of Israel walk out their life, they're going to, they're going to be connected to them by Manasseh. With a, with a, essentially, it's a message of not forgotten. It's this tribe. It's this tribe that was named after being forgotten, and after being lost is no, not forgotten, not lost, restored, and all the brothers are connected. That's it's a pretty neat picture of why Manasseh would be the tribe that would be split in half, bringing that bridge. So it's a symbol of that new future that does not have to play out according to how things played out in the past. And within this, there's, there is this final redemption. Um, again, the connection of Judah and Joseph. <coughs> Judah bring, bring redemption to the pain that came in Joseph. And so when we think about the two messiahs, right? You have the Messiah, son of David, or son of Joseph, who is the suffering servant. And you have the Messiah, son of David, who is the reigning one. The redemption occurs through both of them. Where you know, the one lays down his life, the, fo- the following comes and rules and reigns, but together the redemption is, is brought out through Judah and through Joseph. And that's what we're seeing here at the end of the book of Numbers, where Jair of Judah is partnering with the tribe of Joseph, the tribe of Manasseh, to go through and to conquer Gilead 
and to destroy that, yeah, where the exile began. So now you think about this in a broader context, right? Okay, so you have this. It's a, it's a redemption out of Egypt, out of that time of exile, into a redemption going into the promised land. And then on a greater scale, we have Yeshua, as we were talking about the Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David, who brings the final redemption, who goes even further back than Gilead, all the way back to the fall and the garden to reverse out all the curse that stands against man so that he can bring life and restoration to the entire world. Again, getting us ready to enter into that age to come. Now, within all this, I was thinking about, well, you know, what does, what does all this have? What can we be thinking about in terms of our life and where we stand? whether it's as, as the body of believers or whether it's individual. Again, going back, the power of our words is significant. We can proclaim life and we can proclaim death. Right? We come into difficulty. What are we going to do? Are we going to speak life into the situation? Or are we going to speak despair? Right? We, we, have to, we have to partner with God in restoration. And then within all this... Throughout our lives, just as throughout the lives of the children of Israel, there's echoes of the past that that come up. Right? There's things that we can come to face where it brings back a remembrance of of trial or pain, difficulty that we've gone through. That can, well, it can send us in a spin. Like we, it can it can kind of throw us off kilter. And it's like, well, how are we going to respond? What it, What is our response going to be? Are we going to remember our past and learn from it and say, no, I'm not going to walk in the ways of the past. I'm not going to... I will forget to the point of being able to be whole enough and walk forward, right? And I will look for healing and all the things that have happened in the past. But those difficulties are not going to be the definition of who we are and how we are to walk going forward. Instead, we, we're going to go forward in a new nature and a reconciled in a uh, whole aspect. In Philippians 3, Paul's uh, speaking about, about his walk and, and uh, his walk of faith and, and salvation and righteousness. And he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may hold, lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Right? That was Philippians 3, 12 through 14. He doesn't forget. Well, he, he says he's forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. But again, I don't think it's like a forgetting like completely out the door. I think it's a redeemed type of a forgetting where it's like, I'm not remaining, re- remembering the pain and the hardship such that it defines me. I'm letting go of that. I'm going to learn from it. But I'm going to, from it, press forward into the call of God that he has for me in Yeshua. And so we're all on, you know, within our lives, we're all on a journey of reconciliation and restoration. And God is bringing us to a point. He, 
usually always bring us to new beginnings. You know, when one thing's ending, something new is beginning. And so we say, okay, this one thing is end, ended. What are the blessings I'm going to take forward into the new beginning? And how will I walk in it? How will I learn from the past, know who I am, and then walk forward? Being reconciled with others, and even reconciled with ourselves. Because one of the big things of reconciliation and being able to walk forward into what God has called us to is actually forgiving ourselves for where we've fallen, for difficulties that we've had. It's critical. And it's often hard to do. I don't know how many times y'all have thoughts pop in your head and go, like, oh man, I was so stupid. Why did I do that? It's like, that was 15 years ago. Why am I? What? Why am I worried about that? It's like, oh, that was dumb. But, you know, okay, hey, we've got we to gotta let go of these things, right? And, and uh, not totally forget them, but be restored and move forward. Being, essentially being set free from the sins of the past. And that's part of the aspect, I think, of the name of Manasseh, is that forgotten, forgetting the hardships of the past, forgetting the sins of the past, and saying, no, I'm a new creation. And so resisting temptation to fall back into the trap and in that overcoming and then saying, okay, Lord, what's on the other side of this Jordan? What is the inheritance that you've called me to walk in? And then, just as the children of Israel were about to do, Yoshua, Yoshua was about to take them across. Lord, what are you taking me into it? And how is Yeshua going to lead me into it? How can I follow him and be obedient to him in the call that he has? And that's really where uh, Numbers wraps up. And in this aspect of faithfulness and readiness to go forward. So the way that Numbers ends, because we're ending the book of Numbers, right? And so we, we read the last few verses of the book of Numbers, and then at the end of it we say, Chazak, Chazak, Banit Hazek. Be strong, be strong, and we, may we be strengthened. So I forgot to put that screen up here, so you're going to have to say it from memory. But uh, I'm going to read uh, Numbers 36, verse 13. Okay where the scripture says, these are the commandments and the ordinances that the Lord commanded through Moses to the children of Israel and the plains of Moab at the Jordan by Jericho. And essentially the thing is, these are the commands and this is what they did. They acted in accordance with the Lord's word. They were faithful to him. And that concludes the book of Bamidbar. So now, together, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.